Welcome to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Your hosts are Bob News and Anna Vanskoyk. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Books. Hopefully everyone's enjoying the change of seasons as we move from the, the winter into the what we like to call like I guess what do we what do we call this time of year, Anna? Some people I think there's a word for it. I call it allergy season. <laughs> oh, spring. I was thinking spring. But allergy season works. A lot of I know of many people who suffer from allergies. It's unfortunate. But you know what's good about this time of year? Last weekend I got to fire up the lawnmower, cut the grass, and then got the grill out, cooked on the grill. On top of that, we never had an opportunity to shovel snow this winter. That's true. But I want to back up to the mowing the grass thing because my husband was talking about mowing the grass and I couldn't tell if he was complaining that he had to mow the grass or if he was excited to mow the grass because I think he kind of enjoys it. Like, I think he enjoys the whole process, but it could be that he's out there not having to listen to me. I would think, I know my from my perspective, I enjoy doing it. So I was happy to get out there and finally get a chance to do it. So I hope that he enjoys it. And I hope it's such just not to get out of the house and not have to listen to whatever's going on in the house. But I think he a- enjoys it because it's exercise and he's out there and he's outside and it was gorgeous out this weekend. And so I think he enjoys it. And he can put his um, earphones in and listen to behind the books while he cuts the grass. So there's all kinds of things you can do when you uh, are cutting the grass, as long as it's not too loud. Bob, you and I could talk about mowing the the grass till the cows come home, but why don't we talk about who's going to be on the podcast today? Well, we have a couple of guests that I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy listening to. We have Sharon Wong from our Lawrence headquarters branch. She works in reference there, and we're going to talk to her about some of the things that she has going on with Poetry Month, which April is Poetry Month. And as our author guest, we have Alex Marr. And Alex wrote a very interesting book called 70 Times 7. It's a true story. And it's also one that I think people are going to find very interesting. So two great guests on this episode. And we look forward to bringing those to you. And we'll be back with the first of those in a moment. You'll get to hear our chat with Sharon Wong. Welcome to the segment of Behind the Books, where we take the time to talk with a staff member from the Mercer County Library System. Today, we have the great pleasure to talk with Sharon Wong, who is from the Lawrence Headquarters Branch. Uh, She is a reference librarian there. Sharon, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me today. So Sharon, one of the things we'd like to uh, start off with is just to give us a general overview of what you do at the Lawrence Headquarters Branch. I'm a reference librarian. Um, we do um, a lot of desk work. I also um, do a, a poetry program. Uh, I'm in charge of the BCD right now, the collection. And I will be moving to a, a full-time position uh, actually next week. Probably I'll have more uh, responsibilities on adult programming. So you get to do collection development. You buy, you buy, you go through and you collect for the books on CD when you said right. BCD, right? Okay. Right. 
so you're you're part time currently, but you're going to be moving to full time. Right. And but you do a lot as a part timer because you're doing the poetry program. Can you talk a little bit more about the poetry circle that you have? Yeah, the poetry circle was actually created by one of our senior librarian, Ann Kerr, and she recently retired.、Um, I took over、uh, ten years ago. We had、um, a, a steady group of、uh, poetry lovers, and from、um, Lawrence, West Windsor, Hopewell,、uh, Pennington, AU, and、um, from、uh, almost you know all the branch,、uh, we for many years we read and discuss poetry. In a circle every month.、Uh, in the beginning of this year, we also、uh, added a new program.、Uh, we called a、uh, poetry writing workshop、uh, to foster the creative energy in our group. We have lots of、uh, talented poets in our group too. So to follow up on what you were saying about the poetry circle, you have a big poetry event that's coming up in a couple of days, correct? Yes, we are.、Uh, we are gonna have a poetry reading, a big、uh, poetry reading、uh, event, because we also have a poetry sign in the garden、um, uh, display right now.、Um, yes, it, it's now it's our third annual poetry sign in the garden display because we did this a few years. It's very popular.、Um, people just love them.、Um, so this year we.、Um, We have more people joining、um, to write poetries for the、uh, for the sign display, and we usually have a poetry reading、uh, accompany、uh, the poetry sign display.、Uh, but this year, because we have another、um, uh, program, we one of our poetry friends, Harvey Steinberg,、um, uh, started a uh, collect uh, donation uh, uh, poetry donation from local poets. So we had a, a program、uh, started since last year.、Um, he collected about a dozen uh, poetry uh, uh, books from local poets. Some of them very good.、Uh, we add them to our collection, and we decided to honor them. So we invite them to our poetry reading this year. So we have about.、Um, Ten、uh, people, ten、uh, uh, local poets, is going to read,、um, you know, a poetry reading on Saturday,、uh, April twenty second. So we're very thrilled.、Um, it's going to be a wonderful、uh, event. So they're going to be reading their own. Poetry at this event is that correct? Yes,、um, they're gonna read.、Uh, they're gonna read their own、uh, poems、um, from the book that we have in our library, and we also encourage them to bring their books.、Um, Uh, here to sign for people.、Uh, I know we have a lot of、uh, poetry lovers in our、uh, group and also in our system. So the lucky readers will have chance to ask questions and also to have、uh, their favorite、uh, poetry book signed by those wonderful local writers,、uh, local poets. So yeah, with the support of the friends of the library, of course. That is very neat. So we will make sure to link in our show notes、um, that people can register to come and attend the event to hear the local poets read、um, their selections. And I just I think it's so neat because well I'll be very honest with you, Sharon. Poetry scares me. But with that being said, I had the good fortune to sit in on some of your programs when they were virtual, when、Thank、we were、you. thick in the pandemic. 
you took your poetry circle uh, to the virtual environment and I was able to attend a couple of them. And I just remember sitting back and learning so much. You, you do such a great job of taking the person, the poet itself and his or her work and just making it so accessible to, to all people. I mean, cause I don't think I'm a seasoned poet at all. I'm not versed in it at all. <laughs> And I just remember walking away and just being so inspired to learn more about the poet who you would discuss on that particular night. Thank you so much, Anna. We had fun with you. <laughs> you read so beautifully. I still remember that, yes. You had mentioned that you took over the poetry circle about 10 years ago. Was it something, was yes. poetry something that you already had a passion for and then you wanted to do the program or did you start doing the program and then kind of develop your love for poetry? Yes, uh, when I first came to uh, Lawrence, um, people asked me, um, do you have anything um, in mind to have a program on? Or, and I said, oh, I taught uh, uh, iPad class at uh, Hickory Corner. And they said, no, we don't need people to teach iPad class. We already have some uh, professional to teach. So anything else? I said, oh, I love poetry and, and I'm a poet myself. I have a uh, a uh, poetry collection published before. So I said, um, I love poetry. And I said, okay, why don't you join us? Why don't you take over this program we already have? Um, we would love to have some, you know, fresh blood in in this team. So I was glad gladly took uh took over and uh and since then we had fun. We had, you know, a good time every time. Yeah, sometimes we have more people, sometimes we have less people, but every time is a blast. Everybody has something to share, and I just always loved people's perspectives on what we were reading. Which brings up the question, so you're a poet, so now I want to know, how did you get into librarianship? Well, um, I love to read, and poet won't make you a living, <laughs> so, uh, but um, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I guess, you know, being a librarian, you can still write poetry, right? That's why we have a poetry uh, workshop to encourage a lot of people to come to our group to write and support each other. Um, yeah, I, so I went to a library school um, and and um, I work, um, I also work at Bridgewater Public Library for a few years. So when we moved to Mercer County and I applied, um, you know, a wonderful Mercer County library system and luckily, you know, I got accepted. So are you still writing poetry? Are you still writing original yes, poetry? Yes, we do. Actually, you know, a poetry writing group, everybody has to write. But I, yeah, we, we do have a little assignment uh, so far uh, each month. Now we're starting to try different genre, different uh, form for poetry writing. We have a few poets are very good and uh, we try to, you know, critic each other's work and also provide a lot of publication information too poets who are interested in uh, publishing their work. Well, we've been talking with Sharon Wong, who is a reference librarian at the Lawrence Headquarters branch. And Sharon, we will make sure to link to your Poetry Circle and lo Local Poets Poetry Reading and Book Signing, which is taking place on April 22nd and 2 in the afternoon. And Sharon, it has been great fun talking to you. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking with you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Welcome back, everyone, to the next segment of Behind the Books, where we talk to you about some of the programs that we have coming up here in the middle to later part of April. And Anna, as we alluded to in our conversation with Sharon, it is uh, Poetry Month, and we are doing a bunch of po different poetry things in addition to some of the other pro programs that we have. And one thing that we wanted to mention that's coming up on Tuesday, April 25th, is a program hosted by Chip McCauley from our Hickory Corner branch, and it's called A Poetry Happening, Mercer Poets Read, and that takes place on Tuesday, April 25th at 7 o'clock. So to make it easy for our listeners, we will link to the registration to attend uh, the Mercer Poets Read program. Uh, again, that will be in our show notes, so you can click there to register to attend. Um, and I do want to share a couple of virtual programs that we have coming up. It is National Poetry Month, um, but it is also, Bob, I'm very excited about this. It's Arab American Heritage Month. And being part Syrian and Lebanese, I'm very excited for this next program, which is going to be taking place on Wednesday, April 19th at 7 in the evening. And it's called From Babel to Baghdad, Culture of a Cuisine and, and Transition. And this is going to be presented by an award-winning researcher and food writer, Nawal Nasrallah. And again, that's going to be Wednesday, April 19th at 7 in the evening. Um, and also, April's very busy. It's also Autism Acceptance Month. We have a program on Monday, April 24th at 7 p.m., Yoga and Mindfulness Strategies for Autistic Individuals. So again, that's going to be Monday, April 24th at 7 in the evening. And that is a virtual event as well as the Babel to Baghdad program, the cuisine program. So I will, those are ones that you will need to register for to receive the link to watch it online. Annie, you mentioned that Babel to Baghdad program and, and the cuisine. Have you yourself come up with any kind of uh, cuisines that might fall into that category? Have you prepared anything recently? Well, we, I mean, that's the food I grew up on. And let's say, so for the recent holiday, Easter holiday, I made a fataya, which I've actually done a video on our YouTube channel, uh, how to make fataya, uh, which is kind of a meat pie. Uh, if you want to put it in simple terms, but uh, I'm going to link to that video just so people can uh, take a look and see how to make fataya if they're interested in trying something new this month. And maybe you can also link to the video when you make tabbouleh because people like that as well. I could do that too. I do want to point out because I know a lot of you out there are thinking, wait a minute, Anna's a pescatarian. She doesn't eat meat. And I actually use Impossible Burger for my fataya. So my great grandmother's probably rolling over in her grave, but then I think she's probably like, you know what? She's raising my great, great grandkids on Middle Eastern food. So it's all good. Well, some great programs coming up. And also we want to make sure everybody knows that to check out the website for their local branches to see what might be going on locally in your area. Also, as usual, the youth librarians have a lot going on with the, with the kids as we head in the spring, a lot of nice programs. And as far as behind the books, the next thing up our, on our agenda is our author interview. And we'll be right back with Alex Marr.
Alex Marr is the author of Witches of America, which was a New York Times notable book and editor's pick. Her work has appeared in New York Magazine, Wired, the New York Times Book Review, and The Guardian, among many other outlets, as well as the best American magazine writing. She has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award in Feature Writing, and she is the director of the feature-length documentary American Mystic. She lives in Hudson Valley in New York City, and her most recent book, 70 Times 7, came out in March of this year. Alex, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start off with, um, if you could maybe give us just a synopsis of 70 Times 7. Absolutely. So in 1985, in Gary, Indiana, a 15-year-old girl named Paula Cooper ended up killing a 78-year-old Bible teacher during a kind of robbery gone wrong. Um, she and three of her classmates, who were also 14, 15, 16 years old, skipped school, talked their way into Ruth's home. And uh, the idea was to take some cash, maybe some valuables. Things escalated, and Paula ended up stabbing the woman multiple times. Paula was sentenced to death for this crime, even though she was 15 years old. It was just a, an act of violence that really shocked Gary, shocked L Lake County, Indiana, um, and headlines about the crime, but also about this young girl's death sentence reached all the way to Europe where the media picked it up and absolutely could not believe that there was this young girl on death row somewhere in the United States at the same time, just a few months after her death sentence, the grandson of Paula's victim, a man named Bill Pelkey, who was a local steel worker, had a moment where he just thought, oh, no, this is all wrong. You know, my grandmother would never have wanted a young person to be sentenced to death, to be executed in the electric chair in her name. And so he decided to publicly forgive Paula. Uh, against the wishes of the rest of his family, uh, friends, congregation, co-workers. You know, truly, he was an outsider in making this choice. And it set a number of dramatic events into motion. So this is an, really a story with high stakes and an incredible scope. Well, right in the beginning of the, in the book, in the prologue, you, you know, you come out and say there's never really a question of her guilt, right? It's, there wasn't a wrongful conviction or anything like that. Um, she did commit the crime, but what was it that kind of drew you into the whole s story? And was it more about the fact that, you know, they were talking about executing a 15-year-old child? It was definitely, you know, her age. Her age for me raised some questions about, you know, wow, how is someone so young capable of an act so violent? How are we capable as a culture of sentencing someone so young to death? But then also, how is it that there's this man who steps up and offers mercy and forgiveness to this person who killed his loved one? You know, for me, those pieces raise so many questions. And I, I consider myself to be a generally good person, but I, I have no idea how I would respond in that kind of situation. Would I forgive like Bill did? And so I looked him up. And I gave him a call and I just said, you know, can you, you know, do you have a moment? Can we talk about that decision that you made 
all those years ago. And from that first conversation, I knew, oh my goodness, that this is this is something I really want to take my time with and dive into. And you know, five years later, here I am finally having finished the book. Well, and that's the title. The title is, you know, the the 70 times seven that comes from the Bible about how many times you should forgive your neighbor. And that really is the heart of the book. Um, that's definitely where it starts with this act of forgiveness. And I just, I think the relationship between Paula and uh, Pelkey are, is amazing. I just wondered while you were doing your research, was there something that jumped out at you that was just kind of like gut-wrenching or you just kind of, was your aha moment? Oh, it was, it was really incredible to explore their relationship. To me, that became the spine of the book. You know, there are all these various players, people whose lives were touched by this crime in this case, but the heart of it is really Bill and Paula's totally surprising and surreal relationship. Bill, you have, you know, this nearly 40-year-old white man who operates a crane in a steel mill, has no connection to the life of a young teenage Black girl in Gary, even though they're, you know, a 20-minute drive away from each other, their houses, right? You know, they just had had no intersection in their lives and no way of, of relating to one another. He he takes some printer paper from the foreman's office at the mill and sits down on his break and just secretly starts writing out a letter to this girl who killed his grandmother and he mails it to death row. And just imagine what did Paula think when she gets this surprise letter on death row from the grandson of her victim. And I was able to see hundreds and hundreds of these letters and piece together their relationship based on that and and many conversations with Bill. And it's truly incredible because you get a sense of, you know, Paula was overwhelmed, depressed, just terrified in her situation, but she was also angry and pissed off. You know, she reads, she has the voice when you read her letters of an emotional teenager, like any teenagers in our lives, right? And and so I, I started to see her as this really complicated, fascinating character. And there were moments where, you know, she was incredibly smart. She was smart as a whip. She bounced between all of these schools before her arrest, barely went to class. You kind of wonder what her potential might have been like if she'd grown up in a more stable home because these letters, you know, she she just has this unique way of expressing herself. And I was so surprised as well that the power dynamic in their relationship would shift. Bill would sometimes have a hard time in his relationship with his girlfriend at the time who he ended up marrying, and he would actually ask her for advice. He would write to Paula and say, you know, here's what's going on. What should I do? I'm I, I'm I'm so confused. And and there was something about the privacy in their correspondence that let them both really be honest with each other. So to me, you know, I, I love literary nonfiction and I love a great novel. To me, their relationship is is actually kind of the stuff of a great novel. Well, and, and it's got to be a situation, too, where if Bill doesn't step up in the beginning and do this, no one's going to come to Paula's aid, right? I mean, that she was pro probably going to be sentenced to, to death and her not being sentenced to death led probably to more things down the road where eventually the death penalty was abolished for teenagers. 
Well, this was a situation where, you know, the, the interest from the European press definitely helped. You had a couple Italian journalists I talk about who showed up in Indiana. Uh, they convinced their editors back in Italy to fly them there. And they started raising awareness abroad. They met Bill. They interviewed him. Suddenly, the story also becomes about forgiveness. Then the American press picks that up. And the forgiveness part was really incredible to have enter the media narrative, right? Because people didn't know what to do with that. You could say, well, I'm for the death penalty. She deserved it. But then you hear, well, you know, the family of the victim has different kinds of feelings. Some of them believe in death. Others actually feel like this is not the right thing to do in this case. And suddenly it shifts things, right? And um, some of the appellate team in Paula's case ended up also working on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court level that took place around that time that helped to get closer and closer to the end of the death penalty for kids, which which came in 2005. So you have, you have the sense of this team of people all connected to Paula's case who are connecting the dots on this issue. And, you know, for me, what was so fascinating is this is a history about our justice system that a lot of us don't know about. You know, we have sentenced more than 300, we have executed more than 300 kids to death in this country, not just in colonial times, more recently. Since this, the 1970s, we've sentenced more than 200 kids to death, which is a large number in modern times, right? And when Paula was on death row, um, you know, there were multiple, there were dozens of kids around the country on death rows in different states. And one of the attorneys on her team who did a lot of this research, he made a comment that really stuck with me. He said, the thing about our justice system is sometimes we don't actually know what it is that we're doing. The public doesn't really know what it is that our justice system is setting into motion. And a lot of people who think they're for the death penalty don't really have an understanding of how it plays out. Um, so, you know, it also connects what the, the constitutional argument that came into play in a big way to end this practice was around the Eighth Amendment. Is a practice, is a certain punishment too cruel and unusual to be considered constitutional? And we couldn't agree as a country until 2005 as to whether or not executing a 15-year-old would be too cruel and unusual. And that, to me, is something to really wrap our heads around. That is pretty mind-blowing to think it was. That's recent, 2005. I mean, that that just finally is when it went into play. Absolutely. And, you know, we also, the, 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 the debate continues because we are now the only country, for instance, that sentences kids to die in prison. You know, we call it life without parole, right? And the larger question that this raises is if we... If we don't have faith in the potential of a very young person to possibly, not definitely, but possibly change, evolve, transform, be rehabilitated over time, if we can't even leave open the possibility of that, then we're really saying we don't believe anyone has the potential to be rehabilitated. You know, and and so is that is that is that the the philosophy we want to subscribe to in this country when we talk about justice and when we talk about keeping our communities safe? Well, and you bring up, I mean, it's because the book, I mean, it's true crime. There's a history component to it. 
it's um, it's surrounded ar around the for forgiveness component and some of the tension that came with that forgiveness. And the reviews have just been astounding. Um, and we're very happy for you. And we can we hope it this brings you lots of success. And I'm sure you might already Thank be working you. on your next uh, topic. But this was this just seems like it was a labor of um, not love. I don't know. It's something where it's like there was something driving you to finish this. Oh, it definitely, you know, I, I really became so invested in this story and the, it was one of those things where you peel away one layer and yeah. you see so many layers beneath yep. and you just feel compelled to keep going. And I felt that it was so important to talk to multiple people connected to this story. So for instance, you know, I, I had to wait three entire years before Paula's older sister, Rhonda, who she grew up with and was so close to was finally willing to talk after decades of silence. And that to me was such a tremendous gift. And so, you know, along the way, the process was so satisfying and, and a little bit nail biting, <laughs> you know, waiting for certain people to talk to you. Are they going to, are they going to want to sit down? And, uh, but it's the only way you can really um, help readers get into the story on a deeper, on a deeper level. Um, so I talked to her, I also got to know the prosecutor, you know, so it, it really was about let's try to give some complexity and emotional depth to each person who touched this situation. Can we picture ourselves in their shoes? What what would we have done? And it's not always an easy answer. Well, we've been talking with Alex Marr, who is the author of 70 Times 7, which came out uh, in March. And we encourage all of our listeners to check it out. Alex, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. We wish you nothing but success. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everyone, as we wrap up this episode of Behind the Books. Thanks so much to Alex Marr for taking the time to talk to us about that fascinating story. Uh, Anna, just the fact that she took five years of research and talking to all these different people. And, you know, I, I don't know that she referred to it as a labor of love, but it was something that obviously she had to have a great interest in to spend that much time putting it together and the end product was something I think people are really going to be fascinated to read. There was definitely some fire there for her, um, some intrinsic need to to finish that project. And I, I guess when just talking to her and kind of looking through the book, I, one of the most powerful things I thought about, well, there was a couple things. I mean, just the power of forgiveness um, and kind of looking at uh, another side of what was very powerful for me was how this was a teenager and they were put, um, they were basically given the death penalty and how that law has just recently, I mean, relatively speaking, recently changed to where that is no longer uh, acceptable with our justice system. It's a book that I think people will find very intriguing and it's available if uh, it's coming to the library recently. So it's available if you want to check it out and read and also uh, our conversation with Sharon Wong just listen to her you could tell just from talking to her how much she really enjoys poetry right you and I have, have talked at times on the podcast about how we're a little bit lost when it comes to poetry but uh, you know you could tell that from talking to Sharon that she really has a, a passion for poetry 
So she is doing the program at the Lawrence Branch with local poets, where they're having a poet reading and book signing. And that is, as she mentioned, 2 p.m. on the 22nd of April, and that's at the Lawrence Branch. So our our community has myriad options for poetry this month because we talked about the poetry happening, the virtual program that's that's happening on the 25th at seven o'clock. So people can just go nuts with uh, poetry this month because we're offering quite a bit of opportunities. And even if you're scared of poetry, which I told Sharon, I am terrified of poor poetry. Um, this is a way you can kind of get your feet wet. Kind of dip your toe into the pool of poetry, if you will, and see how it, how it works out. But I am going to have to, at some point, take a dive into poetry because next episode we'll talk a little bit more about updating people on how we're progressing on uh, the reading challenge. But needless to say, I still have not crossed off that poetry uh, category. But Anna, I enjoyed bo both of those conversations with Sharon and Alex. Uh, I think people are going to enjoy the book. People should take a shot at those poetry programs. I think they'll enjoy those. And... Uh, it was just another good episode. So again, we do want to thank Alex Marr and Sharon Wong for taking time to talk with us today. Bob, as always, it's been a pleasure, and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review. For more information about the Mercer County Library System, please visit us on the web at mcl.org. We are produced by Laura Narasik. Our thanks goes out to Kim Livingston for her technical expertise, as well as to Dana Benner for creating our cover art. Your hosts are Bob Noose and Anna Vanskoy.